0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture is Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shores of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds, He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the Mighty One of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, at the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, I got a few uh, housekeeping items before we dive into the text this morning. First of all, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms. Uh, We are grateful as a church uh, for the ways you invest in the next generation in a, in a world that sometimes either minimizes or, or overlooks the sacrifices and challenges of motherhood. wants you to know that we are grateful and I'm grateful uh, for what you contribute um, to the life of our church. Uh, second, I want you to know I'm going to preach from this stool today. Uh, I had a rather epic mountain bike crash last week, which means I have two fractured ribs. Uh, my hip's not in good shape. And basically, if you could just pray that I wouldn't sneeze during this sermon... <laughs> that's kind of what I need from you. There's nothing as painful in my life right now simply as sneezing. Um, So that's actually uh, kind of a metaphor for how we show up here, isn't it? Like, it makes me realize, man, some days I show up and I feel really healthy and I'm in good spirits, and some days I'm pretty banged up. And uh, the same is probably true of you. There's days when you show up here and your body and soul are good, and there's days when you show up here and your body and soul are pretty banged up. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, I'm glad you're here, and I hope you'll bear with me as I'm in a little weaker state uh, this morning. Uh, third thing I want to do by way of housekeeping is just a quick financial update for the month of April since that month is now behind us. So you can see on the screen behind me the budgeted uh, goal of that month, actual giving and then actual expenditures. And again, we just put this in front of you on a monthly basis so that you can know stewardship-wise how our church is doing. Um, we've been journeying our way through the life of Joseph in the latter half of Genesis and Actually, next week, we conclude this series, so we're almost to the end. And today, we come to chapter 49 of Genesis, where Jacob is blessing each of his 12 sons. Um, At first glance, this can seem like a little bit of a distant moment to us. We're not entirely sure all that's going on in this text, Um, but it actually points to something that we desperately need, each of us as a human being needs a sense of direction, and a sense of destiny. We need to know who are we, where do we come from, where are we going, what should we give ourselves to, what's our purpose in life, and our calling for life on earth. These questions are questions we're all asking, whether we ask them explicitly or whether we ask them more implicitly. And the way our culture answers these questions of destiny, who are you? What should you give yourself to? Is essentially to tell us to look within yourself, right? Like, hey, you can be anything you want. You can do anything you want in life. Just look within yourself, figure out who you wanna be, what you wanna do, and go do that. More power to you. You know, you can be anything you wanna be. And on one hand, that feels kind of liberating. It's good to know we can kind of do anything we might want. On the other hand, it can feel pretty paralyzing, can't it? like you just got to figure it out. It's graduation season. And so that means I've been going to a bunch of different open houses for various high school seniors uh, who are graduating here at Quarumdale. And by the way, if that's you, uh, congratulations. We're proud of you uh, for making it to this moment. But you know, when you have a high school graduation open house, what does everybody ask you? What are you going to do? Hey, so what's next for you? You know, And uh, sometimes they mean that like, what are you gonna do three months from now? You know, are you gonna go to college or join the military or get a job or do a gap year? But oftentimes behind that is a bigger question of like, what are you gonna do with your actual life? Like, do you know for the next 50 years what you're gonna give yourself to? And I can just tell you, no 18 year old knows what they're gonna do for the next 50 years of their life, right, like some of you guys did when you were 18, but you're the minority. The rest of us said something to answer that question but in reality, few of us have any sense what we're gonna give ourselves to when we're 18 years old. And so this can create a lot of pressure for us, right? To, to, to be asked, hey, what are you gonna do with your life? I remember in my own high school graduation, um, you know, people would ask me, hey, so what are you gonna do next? I don't know, but what I, what I answered with was just whatever the guidance counselors at Miller North High School told me. So they, I had done these tests, you know, and they were like, hey, you're really good at math and science, maybe you should go into engineering. So I was like, all right, well, I do get good grades in those classes, so I guess I'm going into engineering. I didn't even know what that was. I'm not sure that I knew a single engineer. Or if I did, I knew that they had the job title engineer. I didn't know anything about what that means. I still don't know what that means. So those of you guys that are engineers, I love you. I don't know what you actually do from Monday to Friday. Like, I don't know what that means. And so they were like, we should go into engineering. So I was like, you know, when people asked me, hey, what are you gonna do? I'd be like, well, you know, I'm going into engineering. (laughs) So I went to college and I made, I had to declare a major. So I declared a major of engineering and I went through my first year and took all the prereqs and all those freshman classes. And I got to the end of my freshman year and I looked around at all the people in my study groups and stuff. And they were all A, really excited about engineering, and B, really confident this is what I want to do with my life, and most of them actually knew what it was. <laughs> and I realized, I don't think this is what I want to do with my life, A, because I'm, I'm still not sure what it is, but I definitely am not as excited about it as all these other people. And so then I realized, oh, I'm gonna do something else. And then I went through all that again of like, well, I'm 19, but now I have to answer the question again, what am I gonna do with my life, and again, I don't really have an answer. Every one of us needs a sense of direction and destiny. Some answer to the question, who am I and what should I be doing and what should I give myself to? And in Genesis 49, that's essentially the question that Jacob is trying to answer for his sons. He's trying to give them a sense of place, a sense of direction, and a sense of destiny in the world. And what's fascinating is, Jacob is doing this for his sons, but the scriptures are also doing this for us. Because in Genesis 49, as Jacob speaks to his sons about their destiny, we also learn about our destiny. God is telling us the destiny, the direction, the goal of humanity. He's helping you know, what are you here for? What should you be doing? Where is this all headed? And what journey are we on together. In other words, you can't answer the question, what are you here for? Unless you know the answer to the bigger question, what are we here for? And that's the question that Genesis 49 is seeking to answer for us. And so I want you to walk out of here this morning with two really helpful things. One, a deeper sense of purpose and destiny for your life. And two, a deeper sense of how the whole Bible fits together. Because actually Genesis 49 is a foundational text for understanding the whole Bible, And so part of what we're going to do tonight is just see how the story arc of the Bible makes sense for us of our own lives and of the destiny of humanity. So let's look together at Genesis 49. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it there. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat that you're sitting in. Um, In this text, I want you to actually look at it on the page because how the text looks on the page matters. It's part of what you need to pay attention to. So if you look at Genesis 49, what you'll notice is it has an introduction in verse 1 and a conclusion in verses 28 and following, and then a bunch of stuff in the middle. The introduction in verse 1 tells us, And Jacob called his sons together and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So the text sets you up to understand It's looking to the future. There's a sense of prophetic foreshadowing here. Jacob is saying, here's where you're headed. Here's what's going to happen in days to come. Then verses 2 through 27 are indented in your text, and the reason is because they're poetry. And in the Bible, what kind of literature it is always affects how you read it. So this is poetry. What that means is it has the nature of poetry. There's a lot of imagery here. There's a lot of word pictures painted for us. It's a poetic, prophetic style of writing for each of these blessings. And then notice at the end, verse 28, the postscript all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So, three times blessing, blessing, blessing. The narrator is cluing you in that what's happening here has to do with blessing. And in case you think that's some like kind of weird churchy word, I want to remind you of the significance of this idea for the book of Genesis and for the history of the world. So let's dial back in the book of Genesis and just look at places where we've seen this. So in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Then in Genesis chapter 9, God says to Noah... God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then in chapter 22, God speaks blessing to Abraham and says, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 26 of Genesis, God says to Isaac, I will be with you and bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then in chapter 28, God says to Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So notice the the theme of blessing in Genesis sets us up to understand this. Whatever happens with Jacob and his descendants is how God is going to bring blessing to the human race, how God's going to undo the effects of the fall, how God's going to redeem and restore a broken creation has to do with the blessing that's going to come through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the camera has been zooming in on this family over the course of Genesis, and now in chapter 49, it's going to zoom in especially on 2 sons of Jacob. If you look at the text on your page in indented text, all the poetry, here's what you will notice. 40% of the verses here have to do with Judah and Joseph. Asher gets like one line. Judah gets five or six verses as does Joseph. This is the narrator's way of clueing you in that the two the two important descendants that have the most to do with this promise of blessing are going to be Judah and Joseph. And so let's look at what the text says to and about these two sons of Jacob. First of all, we'll look at Joseph, which comes later in the text, starting in verse 22. The text reads, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. So notice a couple things. First of all, when the text says Joseph, don't forget the sermon from last week. That really what it's speaking of is Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, whom Jacob has sort of adopted as his own and pulled forward in the family lineage. So Joseph's descendants get a double portion of the blessing because God has, or because Jacob has adopted Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. So sometimes the text will refer to Ephraim and Manasseh, sometimes it will refer to Joseph, it's speaking of this family. And notice the language of fruitfulness. The language here is the blessing given is fruitful abundance. In verse 25, we read that God will bless Joseph with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. And if you think back to Genesis 1, you'll remember the main blessings God gave to humanity in creation were the fruitfulness of the earth and the bearing of offspring. And these two blessings that God gave to humanity are concentrated in the blessing to Joseph. So Joseph is going to be a fruitful people, a people who are blessed with abundance. Now, in the back of some of your Bibles, not the ones under your chairs, but some of your Bibles, you have this section that you don't really know what to do with. It's the maps, these color maps in the back of your Bible. And if you find the map that has the tribal allotment for the people of Israel, it looks like this. I've got it up on the screen. Here's what I want you to notice. That red box is all the territory in Israel given to Ephraim and Manasseh. It's most of the northern half of the country. In other words, what this is showing you is that this prophecy that Jacob gives, that Ephraim is going to be fruitful, is actually fulfilled. They get much of the territory. They make up much of the people of Israel. In fact, later on in the prophets... Sometimes when the prophets want to speak to the whole nation of Israel they just say Ephraim because Ephraim has become shorthand for the people. Like Jeremiah for instance says or God says in Jeremiah I'm a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. You see the parallelism? Or in Hosea God says, "How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel?" Ephraim becomes biblical shorthand for just all the northern tribes, all of Israel. So this this promise, this prophecy that Jacob makes is fulfilled. The people of Ephraim become so fruitful that they come to dominate the northern tribes. This is their destiny. Second, then, let's look at the promise given to Judah, which begins in Genesis 49, verse 8. Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. This is language of authority and rule and significance, right? He's going to be victorious over enemies, and he's going to receive the praise of his brothers. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. What is the king of the beasts? It's the lion. So again, this is imagery that speaks to rule and and, um, reign. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So these are two pieces of royal furniture, the scepter, the staff. Until tribute comes to him, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What is that about? Well, what it's telling you is that in the days when Judah rules, Wine is going to be as abundant as water. Like there's going to be so much wine, you're going to wash your clothes with it. You're going to wash your hands with it. You can tie your animals to the vine. No one cares because if the animal eats some of the grapes, no big deal. There's plenty more where that came from. This is language of exuberance. Here's how Derek Kidner, one of the great commentators on the book of Genesis, speaks of this blessing. He says, every line of these verses speaks of exuberant, intoxicating abundance It is the language of excess with its talk of vines used as hitching posts and wine as washing water. It bids adieu to the pinched regime of thorns and sweat. That's what you're to see here. It's a reversal of the curse. It's language of exuberance and abundance and plenty and prosperity. Now, part of my goal is to help you see how the whole Bible fits together. So I want you for a minute to hold in your mind these promises to Judah. Hold in your mind these images of scepters and lions and vines, and let's take a little journey through the Bible and and see how often the Bible hyperlinks back to Genesis 49, okay? Um, You can decide if you want to turn to all these passages. I've got them all on the screen. Depends on how fast you are with your Bible, all right? So first of all, First Chronicles chapter 5, which is one of the later books in the Old Testament. What I want you to see is this later writer of the scriptures is speaking to his readers about what happened back in the days of Jacob. And Notice what he says, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. For he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son though judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him yet the birthright belonged to joseph so this later writer is saying hey the two most important offspring of jacob are judah and joseph joseph because he received the birthright judah because a chief came from him so he's helping us later readers remember the significance of genesis 49 now who is this chief that came from Judah? Well, Psalm 78 answers that question for us. So I want to go to Psalm 78 and I want you to hear the way the psalmist speaks of King David. Psalm 78, verse 67, God rejected the tent of Joseph and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. Notice the psalmist is intrigued by this because as the one who had the right of the firstborn, it would have been very natural for God to choose Joseph and his offspring. But instead, he chose the tribe of Judah. Verse 69, he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from among the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. So Psalm 78 is telling you the the ruler, the chief, who came from Judah was King David. This is who God brought from the sheepfolds to shepherd his people Israel. He was a descendant of Judah, and he fulfills this promise that God made to Jacob of one who would come from the tribe of Judah to rule the people. But I want you to go back to Genesis 49 and look again in verse 10, and notice the third phrase in the verse. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So notice that's a promise of permanence. That's not just saying there's going to be a king named David. This is saying the scepter, the ruler's staff is going to remain with Judah until tribute comes to him. And you'll notice a little footnote in your text. And since Aaron taught us how to read footnotes a few weeks ago, we're going to go down to the footnote and you'll notice that By a slight revocalization of the Hebrew text, this could be translated until he comes to whom it belongs. So the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Genesis 49 is telling us to expect that, yes, David is part of the fulfillment of this, But there's also one coming to whom the scepter belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Here's what John Sailhammer, another famous commentator on Genesis, has to say. The point of Jacob's words is that those who reign from the house of Judah will do so in anticipation of the one to whom the kingship truly belongs. The use of the plural word nations rather than the singular nation suggests that Jacob had in view a kingship that extended beyond the boundaries of the sons of Israel to include other nations as well. David was the greatest king of Israel, but even David's reign did not extend very far beyond the nation of Israel. Genesis is telling us there's one yet to come whose reign will demand the obedience of the nations. And not only did David fall short of this, but all the rest of David's descendants did as well. In fact, if you know your Old Testament, you know that after David, things go downhill pretty quickly, right? And so in the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 21, listen to this. Listen to what, so Ezekiel's writing later on in Old Testament history. Listen to what he says to David's offspring. You, O profane, wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Notice the same language as Genesis 49. Ezekiel says, hey, guess what, ruler, descendant of David, take off that crown because you don't deserve it. And I'm going to hold it until the one comes to whom judgment belongs. I'm going to give it to him. So in Genesis 49, God promises a ruler to Judah and his descendants. As we read the Bible, we get to David, and David is the descendant of Judah, and we think, all right, here's the one. But then we read about David's descendants and the decline of the people of Israel, and and you start going, hang on, where is this great ruler from Judah who's going to receive the obedience of the nations and bring blessing to the earth? I don't think we've met this person yet. That same question animates the whole latter half of the Old Testament. The whole latter half of the Old Testament is wrestling with the question, if God promised this throne and this kingship and this dominion to David and his descendants, how do we explain what's happened? How do we explain the chaos and the disorder and the disunity and the confusion of the people of Israel later in the Old Testament? This longing for a ruler, this longing for one who would come and really bring the kind of rule and reign and thriving and blessing that had been promised explains the placement of Psalm chapter two in your Bible. Okay, remember, I'm trying to help you just be a good reader of the Bible. So the Psalms, as you may know, are compiled together. There's 150 of them written at various stages throughout Israel's history, but they're put together in a songbook, Psalms 1 through 150. And they're compiled later on in the Old Testament history, and it's clear that they're put together in a way that Psalms 1 and 2 are an introduction to the whole book, and Psalms 146 through 150 are a conclusion to the whole book. It's sort of like if you buy a book on the shelf today, you might have a foreword and an epilogue. That's kind of how Psalms 1 and 2 and 146 through 150 function in the book of Psalms. So I want to look with you at Psalm 2, and I think it's important that you understand this is the psalm that God's people chose to put at the front of the songbook in anticipation of this promise that God made in Genesis 49 that is yet to be fulfilled. Psalm 2, let me read it for you. First, I got to get to it. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want God to rule over us. We don't want his king. We don't want any of his people ruling us. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, notice that word, are all who take refuge in him. So notice this psalm stands as a hope and a warning. It's the hope of God's people to say there is one coming that God will set on Zion who will rule the people. And this is a warning to the kings of the earth saying, hey, honor the sun. Kiss the sun. Bow to the sun because he is the one in whom you find refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 stands at the head of the Psalms so that God's people could remember that this is what God has promised. This reign, this rule, promise in Genesis 49 that hasn't yet come to pass, we still await. And so then, of course, we get to Micah chapter 5, the verse we read at Christmas time every year, where Micah says, but you, Bethlehem of Phrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And hence, when the Lord Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem of Judah, Herod and all Jerusalem is troubled because they realize this is a fulfillment of something God's people have long been waiting for. So, from the tribe of Judah, comes one, the Lord Jesus Christ, to fulfill this promise made in the book of Genesis and to complete God's work in history. Now, perhaps you remember, in the Gospel of John, the very first miracle Jesus performs in his earthly ministry. And John tells, it. John uses the language of signs to speak of miracles. Because John wants to remind you as a Bible reader that when Jesus does cool stuff, it's not just like superhero moments. Like he's not just flexing and saying like, I'm more powerful than you. When Jesus does miracles, they are signs. They are saying something, pointing to something, revealing something. What's the first miracle Jesus does in the Gospel of John? Well, it happens at a wedding in Cana where he turns water to wine. And now you know why. Because in Genesis 49, the promise God made to Judah is that when the ruler from Judah comes, it's going to be such abundance that you can wash your clothes with wine and tie your donkey to the vine and let him eat all the grapes. It doesn't matter because wine is going to flow like water. That's what Jesus is doing in turning water to wine. It's a sign, it's a symbol, it's a pointer, that the day Genesis 49 spoke of has finally come at last. So what does this all mean for us? How does this connect to your destiny and your calling and your life in the world? Well, let's end where we started in Genesis 49. I want you to imagine that you're there on this day when Jacob is giving all these uh, blessings to his sons. And imagine that you're not Judah or Joseph. So maybe you're Asher or Naphtali or Gad. One of these tribes that gets like a line and your line is like, Asher's food shall be rich. Cool, that's good. We like good food. Nothing wrong with that. Not quite the same as like, your brothers will praise you and bow down to you, right? Right? So what are you to do if you're one of these other sons and you're overhearing these words that Jacob is speaking to Judah? How should you respond? Like, what's the disposition supposed to be? What are you supposed to hear in those words to Judah? Well, can't you see that the the job of everyone else in the family is to anticipate and celebrate the promise made to Judah? Why? Because in that promise is their destiny as well, right? Right? Like when that ruler comes, that means flourishing for all the rest of the tribes. It means healing for all the people of the world. It means God's purposes being fulfilled. And so what should we do? We should hope in and rejoice in the ruler from Judah that's yet to come. That's what the rest of the brothers are supposed to do. Yes, you're going to get your inheritance in the promised land. Yes, God's going to work his destiny through you as well. But specifically in the one who's going to come from Judah, that's where the hope of our people lies. That's what they were supposed to walk away understanding. And that's why this is captured so clearly in the emphasis in Genesis 49 given to Joseph and to Judah because God is saying, the good of all the rest of these people too is bound up in Joseph and in Judah. So, how should you and I respond? What should our response be? Well, you can see that the same is true for us for where we sit in history reading Genesis 49, and understanding its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like what you should do is the same thing all the rest of the brothers should do. You should rejoice in the lion of the tribe of Judah. You should rejoice in the ruler who is coming from Judah to rule over the peoples. Why? Because in him, your destiny is found as well. In his good is your good. In his rule is your blessing. In his dominion over the nations is your greatest hope. In him is the healing of the world. So what should you and I do? We should rejoice in and celebrate the coming of the ruler from the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is that ruler? What's well, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's who all the scriptures are pointing to. And we often say here at Quorum Deo that the whole Bible is pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole New Testament is looking back and reflecting on his person and work. And what the Bible is teaching you this morning is that from Genesis 49 forward, all of God's people have been longing for who's the one who can come, who will gain the obedience of the peoples, who can bring abundance and prosperity and blessing, who will garner the worship and trust and praise and respect of his siblings and to whom they will bow. Not because they have to, but because they want to because all of God's purposes will be fulfilled in him. So the application of the sermon this morning is what should you do? You should rejoice in the coming of Jesus. You should celebrate and worship and give all of your obedience and love to him. Because that's what the Bible invites you to do, and that's your destiny. Listen, you can see, right, that for the other 10 brothers, there's only two ways to respond to these words to Judah. You can resent them or you can rejoice in them. You can either wonder how come Judah gets such a great blessing or you can realize, oh, in Judah getting such a great blessing, I get a great blessing. And those are the same two ways people respond to the kingship and the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. Either why does Jesus get to be Lord and not me? Or man, I'm really glad Jesus is Lord because in his rule is my blessing and benefit. Like, he's worthy of rule, he's a better ruler than me, he's more worthy of praise and honor and blessing, I should rejoice in his rule because it's good news for me and for all of humanity as well. So listen, each of you in this room has some individual destiny. There's a thing you should do with your life, maybe it's engineering, (laughs) maybe it's something else, maybe you're not even sure what it is yet and you should make a, a career change but there's something that each of us should give ourselves to. It matters what you're wired to do in the world and sort of the things you should invest your life in. Those are important questions. But what I want you to see is whatever your individual vocation is, whatever the thing is you should particularly do with who God's made you to be, there's also a bigger destiny that you're caught up in. There's a bigger purpose for your life. And that is you should worship and serve and obey and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what you're made to do. And because he's the only one who's worthy of worship and obedience. He's the only one who could come and rule and reign over the people of the earth in the way that God means for them to be led and ruled. Listen, you need a brother you can bow down to. You need someone who's related to you and like you, yet worthy of your trust and love and worship and obedience. And that's who Jesus is. So yes, you should go pursue whatever your calling is in life, but as you pursue that calling, the bigger calling, the bigger destiny, the bigger purpose for your life is that you would bow down and worship and serve Jesus. So you should do that right now today. We should do that right now as a people. And whether you have been worshiping Jesus for quite some time or whether this is the first time you've ever heard this, your destiny is to find your hope and your joy in him. So let's pray and worship him together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these promises, this poetry, this prophecy. Thank you that you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ, that the scepter shall not depart from his hand or the ruler's staff from between his feet, that to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so we just say this morning, we want our obedience to be his. We want to find our hope and our joy in him. And so we bow and worship this morning, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for these words in Genesis 49 that show us what to expect, that show us what your people were hoping for, that make sense of the whole story of the Bible for us, and why your coming And your life and your death in our place and your resurrection from the dead are so important and so significant. So would you let us find our joy and our life in you? Would you help us offer you our worship and our obedience as you deserve? And would you help us find our greatest life and our greatest joy in your rule and reign? Would you help us remember this is the destiny you have made us for. This is our highest joy and blessing because you are redeeming the world. And let that begin with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.